This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. You can help us at History Hack by joining us via Patreon. It takes quite a lot of effort and a lot of work of quite a big team now to keep us going. And so if you could donate as little as £3 a month, it would be massively appreciated by all of us. There's different levels because Princess Marcus has set it all up with uh, varying rewards and things. So do have a look. Do join us. There's uh, an exclusive Facebook group as well and you can be part of all of it. Hello and welcome to History Hack. I am flying solo today, it's Merrin, and with me I have Sophie Ambler. Now I'm going to introduce Sophie. Sophie is a historian with interests wide-ranging across medieval Christendom. Um, she's reader in late medieval history at Lancaster University, deputy director of the Centre for War and Diplomacy at Lancaster, and she is author of The Song of Simon de Montfort, England's first revolutionary. Welcome to History Hack, Sophie. Hi, Merrin. Thanks very much for having me. Good to see you. Now then, Simon de Montfort. I'm going to wade in here and say that my knowledge of Simon de Montfort, you could probably write on the back of postage stamp, but it is a name, one of those names that kind of seeps into your mind, particularly, I think, if... um, I had a quick look at the curriculum, and it's one of those names that sort of pops up, gets glossed over but there's definitely more to him than meets the eye, isn't there? Mm-hmm. So shall we start? Would you like to, to, to tell us what everybody needs to know? If, if this was the only thing they needed about Simon de Montfort, what do they need to know? Who was he? Well, the Simon de Montfort who appears on the curriculum is Simon de Montfort, who was Earl of Leicester in 13th century England. Now, actually, there are two very famous Simon de Montfort. Uh, the the first one is the Earl of Leicester, who I mentioned. The other is his father, also called Simon, who led the Albigensian Crusade in the early 13th century in the south of France against the so-called Cathar heretics. So if people have heard of Simon de Montfort, they're usually thinking of either one or the other, but they tend to think of them entirely separately. Okay, so it's Sim- confusing between the Simons. Yes. So the Montfort family love their family names. So they're all either called Simon or Amory or Guy. So there's a complex numbering system and historians disagree about the numbers. So it gets very, very confusing. um, And we just have to find sort of different ways of categorising them. So the one who I'm particularly interested in is Simon de Montfort, Earl of Leicester, who was the son of the leader of the Albigensian Crusade. And Simon Earl of Leicester um, is famous for a couple of reasons. 
um, and that is particularly leading a revolution against King Henry III of England in the 1250s and 1260s. Um, King Henry was the son of King John, nasty old King John. King Henry, um, nothing like his father, but he um, was uh, a, a very pious and um, a very pious king at the time. He rebuilt Westminster Abbey, but there was a lot of discontent with his government. Um, Simon de Montfort um, led a, a movement to oust him from power and set up a council to govern in the king's name. He turned this movement into a civil war in the 1260s, won a famous victory against the king at the Battle of Lewis in 1264, took the king captive, set up a whole new constitution for the government of England, where the king was just somewhere off on the sideline. Um, and this lasted until the summer of 1265, when um, he was uh, cut down with um, most of his followers at the Battle of Evesham um, and the monarchy was restored to power. Um, and during this time, he also held uh, a very famous parliament um, in the early months of 1265 that's sometimes called the First House of Commons, because it was the first time that um, representatives from the towns, as well as knights from the shires, was summoned to Parliament um, for the first time. So it's really a sort of a landmark event um, in those terms. Um, so he's often remembered um, by people interested in the history of Parliament, sort of parliamentary history circles and so on. So he's, but, he's a really influential figure on our history, isn't mm -hmm. he? Perhaps we should just start then by, by having a look at some of the influences on his life. You, you, you talk early on in your book about um, Simon's father, also called Simon. Can you give us a sense of, of Simon's upbringing and what, what created this, what feels like already a strong and bold character? Hmm. Well, I said that um, there were two famous Simon de Montfort, the father, Albigensian Simon, and the son, let's call him Parliamentary Simon. Um, okay. And people tend to think of them separately. Um, Albigensian Simon de Montfort is not a very popular character at all because he's known as um, this sort of monster who came into the south of France and um, persecuted uh, people of the region who um, dissented um, from the Catholic faith. Now, the, that just doesn't make sense in the context of the time in the sense that the whole family was bound together in this common enterprise. And... Simon Earl of Leicester, as he grew up in England and as he pursued his career, was incredibly influenced by the memory of his father and very much sought to follow in his footsteps. So really, um, we have to look at them both together and understand the role that um, Albigensian Simon and his memory played um, in, in 13th century England, but also particularly the ideals of crusading. Um, because the Albigensian Crusade was a holy war, as it was deemed at the time, um, against um, so-called heretics, dissenters. Um, and this was absolutely integral in this period to sort of the ethos of what it meant to be a knight and a leader. And Albigensian Simon, the father, really um, embodied so much of what was seen as the ideal of, of knighthood in this period. So that's why um, he was so influential. Simon Earl of Leicester um, was um, uh, a baby, really, when his father was elected leader of the Albigensian Crusade. And he spent the first 10 years or so of his life growing up 
on this crusade in the south of France with his um, with his siblings, with his mother and with his father, who were all there together. So this is really where he was brought up in a war zone in the Albigensian Crusade, um, looking up to his father and his older brothers and his mother. Going into the going into the family trade, as it were, which was crusading. Very much so. Very much so. And. What's particularly important with with the Montfort is that crusading very much becomes a family trade. But in particular, it's not enough now for the Montfort men just to go on crusade. They have to be leading it. They have to be leading the expedition. And this is what um, Simon the Elder does in the south of France. He leads the Albigensian crusade. There's a very... A famous chronicle written about him, um, describing his his great deeds um, during the Albigensian Crusade and setting him up as as the great leader of the expedition, picking out all of um, the admirable traits that he embodied um, as leader, sticking true to his oath to go on to to crusade no matter the cost, no matter the personal cost, uh, his personal courage and his leadership, and this chronicle really was what um, Simon, uh, his son, was really brought up with. It's almost like a training manual for how to be a knight and how to, how to lead. So it's really, this is, this is the model that is set up for the Earl of Leicester. It's, it's leading an expedition. So, so that there's, I mean, I'm almost tempted to say there's an element of family pride in following, following the family trade going, you know, and leading, not just taking part, but leading. But I'm guessing there were also other influences, um, societal, political influences. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about the political infrastructure they would have been living in, the kind of place and, and what, what would have been happening to their family then? Mm, sure. So, um Simon, uh, Simon de Montfort, Earl of Leicester, um, he, it's important to note that he, he ends up being Earl of Leicester, um, even though his family um, really was hailed from northern France because of a family claim to the Earldom of Leicester. So Simon, being a younger son, um, after his father died in 1218, came to England um, and approached King Henry III and asked for his claim to Leicester to be recognised, really sort of seeking his, his, uh, seeking his fortune, as it were. The claim was acknowledged. So he set up in England. So we're talking about, um, you know, what was the kind of the shape of the political community in England in in the first half of the 13th century. And this is um, a very interesting time, actually, because it follows in the wake of um, the first issue of Magna Carta and the reign of King John, when really um, the, the kingdom in the early 13th century had been riven by civil war under King John with a great deal of discontent against his government. Magna Carta had been issued for the first time in 1215 that really set kingship within the law, um, codified that, that concept very much um, and embedded it into, into political society. And did that um, seep down into, into general society quite quickly, that, that idea of the change of, of way of living? Um, it's quite hard to tell, but I think so. And increasingly as the 13th century went on. So um, Magna Carta was annulled a few weeks after its first issue in 1215, but there were new versions in 1216, 1217, and the definitive issue in 1225. And what's particularly important about the 1225 definitive issue of Magna Carta is that it is enforced by the church, by a sentence of excommunication, so that anyone who breaks 
Magna Carta, whether that be the king or the lowest person in society, is automatically cast out from the community of the faithful. And that has has serious implications. But what it also means is that the church um, publicizes Magna Carta extensively across the kingdom to make sure that everybody knows what's in it because you don't want to break it accidentally and then find your soul in jeopardy. So Magna Carta is read out in parish churches and public meeting places. So from you know the greatest of the great to the lowest of the low, if we can put it like that in society, people probably have a pretty good idea of what's in Magna Carta. And that's everything from the big clauses such as the king shall not deprive anybody of their property or um, execute them or put them in prison or seize their land without judgment um, by peers or the law of the land um, to all of those um, much smaller clauses about feudal rights and and so on. Um, This is important because if, if so much effort has gone into Magna Carta, actually the powers that be, whether they be ecclesiastical, whether they be political, they actually want to make it work now, don't they? So the king has a vested interest, even if he's not completely on board with what he's agreed to, he has a vested interest in making sure that, um, one, that everybody understands what's about to happen, and two, that actually he's in a good place to ensure Magna Carta is in force. So, So who's taking advice from on this? Well, this is a really important um, question. So one of the, the always one of the, the big issues in politics in the Middle Ages is who is the king taking advice from? Because obviously whoever is giving him advice is in a really influential position to affect um, policy and patronage particularly. Um, so King John had been well known or notorious actually for taking advice only from a very small sort of group of cronies. Yeah. Um, Henry III just couldn't do that. Um, Now, that's partly because one of the um, important principles that had really been established in and around um, the Magna Carta Civil War was that a king can't um, go forward with taxation without general consent and consent you get consent by a a national assembly as it were the great and the good bishops and abbots and earls and barons gathering together to decide whether or not whether or not a tax can be allowed and that means usually um, the king has to provide a reason why he needs it and then there's um, discussion and debate Um, and that's how Magna Carta's um, definitive issue comes about in 1225. It's it's granted in return for a tax agreed in a national assembly, which in the 1230s uh, comes to be known as Parliament um, for the first time. So for those really big policies, such as national taxation, you've got a Parliament which is effectively giving advice or consent. And then you've also got um, a working council of um, bishops and barons, and and officers um, who might have to spare an oath um, to to serve the king well and to give him good counsel. But then you get something much more informal, which is the men standing around at court who are in and around the king, who have the ability to whisper in his ear, um, to to gain influence more informally. And that's particularly potentially controversial because it's very difficult for people to see what's going on um, to check that all is above board, um, and also it gives it gives potentially unscrupulous people um, influence. So this is always, um, I think, in any political community in the Middle Ages, it's a matter for, for debate. Um, 
but this is one of the one of the potential issues um, in Henry III's reign. Um, Simon de Montfort is one of those councillors in and around the king, um, as as are several others. So, so we've, what we've got then is an emerging sense of, and I, and I hesitate to use the word because I know that there there are. Um, um, people wiser than I who would assign the word to a particular area but there's an emerging sense of democratic order and certainly parliament parliament meaning the meeting place this idea of consensual taxation taxation to representation it infers almost that we're coming to a, a better form of structure for the people and the people you know be, being governed but was it a stable period? We've, we've had some unrest. Was it stable? Is, is Simon advising in a stable period or, or are we looking at a period of, of still of turmoil and, and dissent? Um, structure is a really good way of putting it because this is exactly what people want. They want something a bit more formal and structured to see those checks and balances in place. Yeah. Um, in terms of whether this, this sort of period was stable or not, the answer is a bit of yes and a bit of no. Um, typical sort of histo- typical uh, historian's answer. Um, <laughs> the answer so, is yes, until I, until I contradict myself. Yes, no problem. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so it's staple in a sense that we've got to put this in, in the broader perspective and say, look, Henry III had a very long reign. Um, he was no King John. That is, he wasn't deliberately or kind of provocatively setting out to rile people. Um, he also managed by the end of his reign in the 1270s um, at his death to see the transfer of power peacefully over to his son, um, Edward I. So we've got to point out all of this and say, look, in the sort of grand context, you could say it was relatively stable. You can also point to the development of those structures, particularly parliament. And 13th century is really critical in the establishment of, of parliament as a regular um, decision making body as well. So we can point to all of that. Um, at the same time, there were there were several movements that we can say that there, there were a few disruptions in, in order in this period. So. Um, following on from um, the civil war under King John surrounding Magna Carta and after the the re-establishment of of King John's dynasty with Henry III in the early 13th century, um, there's a rebellion in the early 1230s, which is is basically a sort of a testing ground for Magna Carta. So this is where the king for a short period in the early 1230s um, sets about, um, he deprives several barons of their property without um, without reason, without judgment. Mm-hmm. And the, the bishops um, confront the king and several barons go into rebellion and the king has to admit um, admit the, the error of his ways. So that, that was a rebellion, but it's important, I think, to point out that this is a really good case for showing what rebellion can be and what rebellion is. Rebellion in this period in the 12th and 13th century, is really um, potentially a legitimate form of protest against illegal or improper royal rule. So if the king does something wrong, taking up arms in rebellion, as long as you do it properly and according to the rules, can actually be a legitimate form of protest. And the rebellion of the early 1230s is a case in point. The king was behaving illegally. He was breaking the terms of Magna Carta. 
a rebellion um, serves to call him to account in conjunction uh, with the action of bishops who, who um, say, look, we're the enforcers of Magna Carta by sentence of excommunication, and they work in concert with, with the rebellious barons. So rebellion can look like instability, but actually it can, if done within within the, the, the boundaries of what was acceptable, it can be um, a way of restoring um, proper government. It wasn't necessarily seen as treasonous as, or anything like that, as we might think of it in the, the 14th or 15th century. It can, in fact, be the constructive means to an end if there is no alternative. And unlike today, where we do have that, that really defined, well-defined infrastructure for policymaking, if we give it the modern day term, policymaking through, I mean, today we'd have green papers, then white papers, people would take advice, and there would be a conclusion set against potential consequences. 800 years ago, is that my maths right? Yes, yes. yes. That infrastructure didn't exist. So all you could do was sit with um, the king taking wise counsel, immediate consequences, then cascading down and rebellion being the only way to say, do you know what? You might not have got that right. Precisely. And this is the key question. It's, look, if you think, if you imagine a society where monarchy is the form of government, and there's no notion of, of, um, of, of changing that until we get to the 12, 1250s, 1260s, which is another issue. Um, what do you do as a subject if your government is going awry, if your government is overstepping the bounds of, of lawful government, there's a policy you don't agree with, or what happens if there's a series of policies you don't agree with? What can you do to call your government to account? And this is the big question. So Magna Carta was one potential way but then it's how does how does one enforce it rebellion is a very very important way of calling the government to account um, excommunication by the bishops becomes a really important way of calling the king to account as well um, the question then becomes as we move into um, the late 1250s and, and late 12 and into the 1260s what happens if that's just not quite enough and this is where this is this is one of the, the tricky um, questions. You can see when you get someone like King John, who is, I think we can all agree now, a pretty nasty piece of work. Um, or we get the kind of actions that Henry III uh, pursues in the early 1230s, which are palpably illegal. It's obvious that the king is governing illegally beyond the law and you can see there's a really clear case there for rebellion or, or potentially excommunication but what happens if you get a king or a government that isn't tyrannical as such but just isn't very good yeah. what happens when you you get a situation with henry iii where he makes various mistakes perhaps you don't agree with his sort of policies on um, on patronage uh, he makes a mistake in, in signing up to a very expensive um, a foreign campaign in the Mediterranean. He has an idea of sort of conquering Sicily, but but could never afford really to do it. Um, and apart from this, he's a sort of king where there are various grievances that people have with his rule, but you couldn't necessarily say it was bad enough to go into rebellion. But at the same time, you can see things going wrong. What exactly do you do? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Yeah, what is your first recourse to action and how can it be effective if the only thing you can do is run the risk of, of actually causing rebellion, physical rebellion? It's not just dissent we don't like this it's actual no we are going to take up arms Mm -hmm. so 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 let's let's take this a step back towards simon because if the king is um the the, the policy maker and if things aren't necessarily going to plan for each tier of society let's let's think about simon's role in this and the reputation perhaps that he's developing as I don't know if an alternative is the way to pitch him or as the potential voice for dissent. How does he get to that point where people are starting to say, do you know what, Simon might have an idea about what's going on? In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Well, he really makes his his reputation internationally in the 1240s and 1250s. So... um, We've said he was he was sort of brought up with this idea of being a, a great crusader. Um, yep. He actually he goes on on crusade um, in 1240 1241 um, on an expedition known as the Barons Crusade um, to Syria um, and Egypt. And we don't know quite know we don't quite know what he got up to there. Our sources are just very patchy. But by the end of that expedition, he was being put forward by the barons of the Kingdom of Jerusalem as a candidate. Um, to be regent of the Kingdom of Jerusalem whilst their king was underage. So they saw him as, the, you know, this is Simon de Montfort, sorry, early 30s, in, in 1240, 1241, um, being put forward as somebody who could run a kingdom. Now, now I'm, just, I'm going to interject here because what I find fascinating is the spiral of not evolution, but the spiral of attainment, accrual and achievement through exploration. Because as people are starting to crusade, to travel as they have the ability, and I know we don't like using the word technology, but that's what it is, as they have developed technologies, however simple, to afford them travel and exploration, they are also bringing back cultural insights that are starting to inform the art of the possible societally back in Britain, aren't they? So Simon's um, reputation internationally, is, does he have the same kind of esteem here at home? 
Is he um, still a leader here, potential leader? Yes. So firstly, home in the sense of um, France, in the sense of England and France being very, very close at this time. So he's also put forward in the early 1250s as a candidate for the regency in France when the king is off on crusade. So similarly, the barons of the kingdom of France see him as somebody who could lead them, who could run the kingdom. And also um, in the same period, in the early 1250s, um, he is set up by his king, Henry III, as governor of Gascony. Um, the kings of England uh, ruled over Gascony in southwestern France in the Middle Ages. Um, it needed a governor. The king chose Simon. So he's been sent to Gascony with quasi-regal powers to govern that region. Um, it all goes wrong in the end in Gascony. Um, he falls out with the Gascons. There's an inquiry held. Uh, and it's a big source of rupture between Simon and Henry III that he sort of put in front of this inquiry. But, oh, okay, okay. So that's where it comes from. Yes, it's one of the big, big um, causes of, of upset between them. But um, partly because this inquiry was a was a bad precedent to set in terms of, um, you know, the, the king's magnates being put in front of this kind of uh, this kind of procedure, um, various of, of the English earls step forward and say to the king you can't do this you you can't um uh, you can't subject him to this sort of inquiry and procedure for pursuing a government that that you set him up uh, to run so um he's certainly um i say he's he's popular or he's seen as as a leading magnate in england but he is you know if you think of um the government of gascony as being again, setting up almost to run a region like he's a king. Um, Gascony, the Kingdom of France and the Kingdom of Jerusalem, these are three invitations um, across Christendom uh, for him to act uh, in, in running a territory. Wow. So, so let's, let's focus on Simon for a moment. The king does not enjoy scrutiny. So what is it that actually tips Simon over the edge and says, do you know what, you're not listening to good advice now, I've got to do something about it? It's a tricky one because if we stand back and look, it doesn't necessarily look any worse than it had done in previous years. We've got to ask why now? Why in 1258? Yeah. This all kicks off in 1258. What was the trigger? Yeah, it kicks off in a parliament in 1258. And we can point to a few um, triggers. So one of those is the king's um, patronage of his um, half-brothers. There was a limited amount of land and, and resources to go around in the patronage pot and uh, some people were irked that um, the king was giving it to some rather than others. So uh, there was partly an issue as well that um, these half-brothers uh, who were the um, the children of Isabella of Angoulême, uh, Henry III's mother by her second marriage, uh, who'd come uh, and set up uh, their homes in England. Uh, there was an issue that they'd fallen out with various of um, the, the, the English barons and were pursuing their feuds by violence, which was not okay. You pursue a feud by law, uh, by legal recourse, not by violence. And Henry III really wasn't interested in, in providing justice to sort, to sort this stuff out. Um, he just sort of wanted everyone to be friends, I think. Um, so there was that. Yeah. And he just thought, can we just all be friends? And let's just let's just forget about it. Let's just get on with things. And of course, that's just not okay. If somebody attacks your lands and kills your men, 
you want legal recourse. You don't want the king to just tell you to, to put it to one side. Um, there was also this idea um, that Henry III had to go off and conquer Sicily on behalf of his, his younger son, which was going to cost an eye-watering amount of money, and he hadn't sought counsel or consent of Parliament before he signed up to it. So all of these things were, were bubbling away and causing a lot of dis, di, discontent at court. At the same time, if we put that in the long-term perspective, was it really any worse than what was going on under King John, say? Well, it, it wasn't. Um, but at the same time, I think what we can see what uh, happening in 1258 in this parliament um, is a sort of an atmosphere. It's an atmosphere of um, vexation um, that sort of bubbles into um, almost uh, violent fury where you've got Simon de Montfort and various other magnates on one side and then you've got the king's half-brothers on the other. They almost, almost breaks into a fist fight in Parliament and the king has to, to break it up. And what happens is that Simon de Montfort and the Earl of Gloucester and various other barons gang together in, in a back room somewhere and they all swear an oath to support each other against these, um, these vexations and uh, to defend each other come what may. And you can see them, you can just sort of imagine them um, egging each other on to do this until it, it all boils over one morning when they march on the King's Hall at Westminster um, and demand that he hand over the reins of government to them so that they can set up a council to run the kingdom. There'll be no um, taxation or anything without, unless it goes through Parliament, but also the key officers of state um, like the Chancellor, um, the, the Chief Justice, um, the, the Treasurer, um, these will all be um, set up by the Council. So, so this Council will um, control the machinery of government and also the King's castles and, and all his possessions. So it has th this Council of, of barons and then barons and bishops will really take control of the running of the country um, for the foreseeable future. And this is something entirely new. It's not a rebellion. We, we've said rebellion could be a sort of legitimate form of armed protest yeah, yeah, yeah. to call the king to account. This is this first of all takes place pretty much secretly in in Westminster in 1258. The wider population doesn't know what's going on deliberately because it's so shocking. The idea that you can seize power from an anointed monarch and actually change the way that the country is run. And, and that's really important because at this at this point in time, we've still got this idea of almost the hand of God, the, the, the deification of monarchy, as in it's the king, what the king says goes. We've just gone through a period where Magna Carta is starting to become not just a concept, but it's a reality, this idea of structure and what a king may or may not do. And so I guess the idea of not removing a king, but actually inhibiting his God-given ability to rule is quite, I mean, it, it's more than divisive. So if, if, there, if it's a backroom coup, rebellion, insert word of choice here, what actually happens physically to Henry then? Does, Simon, they don't, they don't sort of bundle him up and put him in a blanket box, do they? Not at this stage. Um, <laughs> not, not, yet. Yet. <laughs> not yet. Not, not at this stage. Um, so he is somehow coerced or cajoled into um, giving an oath um, to, to support this regime um, by some kind of mixture of pressure, the threat of force and the promise 
of, you know, um, the council is going to look after things for now and we're going to sort stuff out. Um, so he's forced to give this oath. Now, you can't, this is one of the big issues as well, um, and the, yeah. the Pope would go on to annul this oath because you can't hold a gun to someone's head and promise them to stake their soul. Um, it's just not, it's, it's, it's not legal. Um, so that's one of the ways that they, they keep him under control. Um, they take control, as I said, of the machinery of government so that all letters and orders are issued in the king's name, in his voice, but only by the council. Because they have, um, you know, the, the seal um, and the, the ability to, to issue these orders, they can control communication so they can stop Henry, for instance, sending out for help to the King of France or to the Pope. They this is what is his rule. Sorry? They can censor his rule. Exactly, exactly. So that they can they can control communication to the wider populace and they can control Henry's personal communication. Things break down in the early 1260s because Henry was able to get word um, to the King of France and to the Pope to tell tell them what had been going on. And as soon as the Pope heard, um, you know, so this is this is not okay, I'm stepping in to annul this. Um, so yeah, so this this is this is how it was done um in 1258, 1259, whilst the council put in place a whole series of reforms um, for the government of the kingdom, Henry overthrew this system by getting word to the Pope um, in the early 1260s. And then the only way after that to reimpose um, this system of council and these reforming measures um, in the 1260s, in 1263, 1264, was by open war. Okay, so so we're talking again about um, the international, transcontinental, if you like, um, influence of religion. Um, always an influence at this point. It's not just, a, and, and, and I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated by the idea now that in, in the middle of all this, we've got a really solid, tight form of parliamentary governance emerging that is being set down it's being audited it's being monitored and that is starting to have that cascade effect through society it's no longer just surfed in the fields going oh there's a god there's a king there's a, there's a pope we've got these different religions there's law and order in society so with that in mind this idea of structure what does simon put in place if if he's usurped the king's position what kind mm. of governance does he want to to to, to, to put in place instead? We can very much say that in 1258, 1259, when Simon and his confederates take power, they had a vision for what they wanted to put in place. So they might have been acting almost on the spur of the moment when they seized power, but they had a very clear idea of what they wanted to achieve. So once they've taken control of government, and this comes, um, they put in place this whole series of reforms that come under the banner of the provisions of Oxford um, issued in over 1258 and 1259. And one of the key um, tenets of that was providing justice to the wider population. Wow. So the idea here was that Henry III um, was governing under Magna Carta, 
But if we sort of row back to the early 13th century and the beginnings of Magna Carta, Magna Carta is largely concerned with the betterment of the barons and the king. It doesn't have a huge amount to say about what should be done for the, the wider population, the sort of ordinary women and men on the street or in the field. And it very much provides the mechanisms for the barons to keep their tenants under their own heels as much as, as, as the king. What we see in the 1258-1259 period is Simon de Montfort and his confederates saying, that's not okay anymore. It might not be that we are legally obliged to give the peasantry a better deal, but we are morally and spiritually obliged to look after their interests. Yeah. So there is, and I think it's important to note here as well, that one of the, the issues with Magna Carta that was identified in the 1250s, 1260s, um, was that it set a legal um, boundary on how the king could treat his barons, his great men, um, but it didn't really set any boundary apart from sort of the headline clauses about justice on how he could treat his um, treat the general uh, peasantry. And that meant that when Henry III needed money, um, he could go to Parliament and ask his barons and bishops, they could just tell him no, um, go away in non too polite terms, which is what they often did. How does he get his money? He does it by extorting money from the peasantry, through his sheriffs, through his judges, um, through a, a fairly oppressive system of local government. So when Simon de Montfort et al. seized power in 1258, um, they put this aside. They put in, in place various legal reforms that, that kind of uh, seek to, to weed out um, corruption again, amongst royal officers and put a stopper on this kind of financial exploitation. But they also set up um, a, a, a new chief justice who will travel the kingdom and hear the complaints of the wider population. And importantly, um, this involved a new measure where um, ordinary men and women could just sort of come and make their complaints. They wouldn't have to get a legal uh, document to initiate a case or anything like that. They could just sort of roll up and make a verbal complaint and it would be investigated. Um, and this brought to light all sorts of sort of corrupt practices amongst, you know, sort of sheriffs and uh, bailiffs and so on. Um, so it gave people access to justice and there, there was very much a, a kind of a moral and spiritual uh, impetus behind this that came, I think, very much from Simon de Montfort and his, his kind of circle of friends amongst the bishops and the Franciscan and Dominican friars. It was a bit tricky um, because this was an incredibly ambitious project and it was just basically, it was a bit too much. Um, it just couldn't achieve what it wanted to because of the weight of business it was asked to take on. Um, but, but this was very much a key part of, of the reforming enterprise. I, I find this fascinating because if, if we stepped back for just a moment and said, completely out of context, by the way, there's a governing infrastructure that involves local government and local representation. You could go along to your parish council and make a local complaint. It's not so different from actually what we have today. So is this Simon's legacy that, that this infrastructure ended up being the framework, the basis from which we today have our, what we think of as government? Mm. Well, I think um, there's, there's a couple of key legacies, and, and one of them very much is that ability for ordinary people to bring complaints directly um, to government, whether that's through um, a local representative or whether that's through um, a, a travelling 
uh, justice or, or to parliament. So it wasn't until Edward I's reign in the later 13th century that we see this new system of petitions to parliament really established, where that's where you know communities can actually put forward written uh, grievances and complaints and so on. But this idea um, was very much at the heart of, of the Montfortian enterprise um, through that itinerant justice and through the importance of parliament. So I think that's um, a very important legacy. Basically, once you've, once you've told the wider population that they're entitled to bring their complaints to the king Guess directly, what? that's what, what people expect. Exactly. You just kind of raise the expectations of government. So that's that's an important point. The other important point is holding parliament as a regular part of the government of the kingdom. So not just sporadically when the king wants a parliament, but as an ordinary point of business. So um, in 1258, one of the key reforming measures was that parliament should be held three times a year, come what may. Now, that didn't necessarily stick um, afterwards, but it Parliament from that point forwards had to be held, particularly when the king um, wanted uh, wanted tax and he had to con- he had to consult. And what was particularly important about the Parliament of, of the early months of twelve sixty five, which was one of these um, parliaments that had to be held uh, three times a year, was yeah. that yes. It was representatives from the towns as well as um, knights from the shires, which was one of the, the legacies, um, but also holding government just to have discussion about policy, not just because it's a tax. So again, once you start telling townspeople as well as knights, as well as the, the great magnates and bishops, that they're entitled to have a say in discussion, that raises expectations. It's, it's phenomenal. So I feel like we've only barely started exploring not just Simon himself, but Simon's legacy. And I know that in, in your book, if I look at the introductions to your book, you describe him as heir to a great warrior, devoted husband and father, fearless crusader knight and charismatic leader. Um, I was particularly struck by, and I, I think it might even be your first sentence, it was around half past eight in the morning, with summer rain clouds weighing heavy in the sky, that Simon de Montfort decided to die. I think that is possibly the best place to leave this, because what I hope people will do is obviously grab a copy of your book, discover Simon for themselves, and perhaps um, explore. I mean, I've, I've had my eyes open today in terms of how Simon's legacy has shaped how we are governed now. Um, I, I just want to say thank you because it's been a real eye-opener to, to somebody whose name I knew, but I didn't know much about him. Sophie, thank you very much indeed for joining us today. What else are you working on at the moment? Please tell us you're doing another book. I am. I am doing another book. Um, so um, I'm working particularly now um, on what we might call sort of social military history. History. So I'm interested in the, in the later Middle Ages about the experience okay. of people of lower status. So not so much the great the great bishops and, and barons that I've been looking at, particularly in with Simon de Montfort, um, but the, the guys on the ground and what war and what battle was like for them um, in the later Middle Ages. So that's what I'm working on now for my next book. That's brilliant. Um, would you would you like to come back as, and perhaps tell us about some of the sources you're using for that? Because I imagine that's fascinating. 
I'd love to. I'd love to. I'm only um, just beginning that project. And it's a really big process of exploration because um, you have to sort of cast the net wide and look look for a whole uh, wide range of sources to kind of pick out these stories. Um, so it'll be a little bit little while yet, but I'd love to. Thank you. That'd be great. Sophie, thank you very much indeed. That's been fantastic. Thanks very much, Mervyn. Thanks for having me. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them, and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support, and here's to your next great book. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.